This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, this reading is from John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in, in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord God. Thanks be to God. The next reading is from Philippians 1, oh, sorry. Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Paul said, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident, confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me add my welcome to you all. It's great to be here together. Let me pray as we hear from God's word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that your love would dwell within us so that by your spirit we might become mature disciples, ready for the day that Jesus returns. Amen. Amen. Well, if only. I wonder what in your life makes you think that thought right now. If only this lockdown would end. If only I could get some peace and quiet if only I could send my kids outside and off to school. If only my house wasn't such a mess. If only I could see somebody. If only I could get a haircut. That's mine. I've needed one for months now. If only, fill in the blank. Longing. We long for all kinds of things all the time, from securing our retirement to breakfast cereal. Uh, and some of the things we long for are really important but other things not so important in the scheme of things. 
Uh, if you've ever been in the aisle of a supermarket with a tantruming toddler who really wants Cocoa Pops, you'll know that that toddler really needs to learn about what things are important. Now, when it comes to our church life, we can encounter something kind of similar. Wherever church fits into your life, we all have an idea of what the church and what our church needs most and what it should be. Perhaps it's for continued, strong, stable leadership. Perhaps the opposite. Perhaps it's for better heating or an updated hall or more organ music or less organ music. Some things feel significant but are actually not that important. Others go by the wayside, but once they're discovered, we think, how did we live without this for so long? Well, the thing about longings is that they often tell us more about ourselves than they do about reality. What we think really matters sometimes only matters because it matters to us. So how can we tell what will actually make a difference in our life together as a church? What will actually change us into the community that we ought to be? Well, in our passage today, right at the beginning of this letter of encouragement to the Philippians, Paul shares with them what he thinks they need most in the form of a prayer. And what he prays for is love. That's what we're going to examine in our passage today. And we're going to do it by looking at the character of love, the purpose of love, and the completion of love. Okay? So firstly, the character of love. Let's read chapter 1, verse 9 with me. And this is my prayer, that your love might overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. Paul begins his prayer for the Philippian church by asking God that they might be people marked by love. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. Uh, be nice to people, pay your taxes, care for your family. But is that the really, does that really capture the kind of love that Paul imagines for them here? When I was five, I had a slight obsession with the Disney movie, The Little Mermaid. Uh, we had borrowed the VHS uh, from the video store, and I can remember watching it and then rewinding it and then watching it again, and then rewinding it, and then trying to re-watch re it again before my mother hurried me outside where I would then play Ariel, you know, little girls in their games. Uh, and while I really did want to have, you know, the tail and the hair and the singing voice, secretly, what I really wanted was Prince Eric. <laughs> Not him exactly, right? But my own Prince Eric whom I could fall hopelessly in love with and give my whole heart to. And I love Brian very much. Uh, I, might, I may have even been caught falling around the house, swooning and sighing a little. But it's not this kind of love, and it's not only the common decency of paying our taxes. That is the kind of love that Paul wants Christians particularly to be characterised by. Here's something richer in mind. And that phrase in verse 8, that he longs with them, for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, tells us something. It takes us back not to Prince Eric, but to our John 13 passage. Jesus with his disciples on the night before he died. And there, that's where we see the kind of love that Paul prays would characterise the Philippians and us. 
And that love is Christ's love. It is the overwhelming, absolute and utter passionate commitment to the good of one another. It's the kind of love that sees the need of others, the magnitude of the cost of what it will take to love them, and knowingly, willingly choosing to serve. It's the love that stoops down to care for children and to wash the feet of servants caked with dung and mud. And it's the kind of love that chooses the unseen and the lowly work because it cares more about God's glory than comfort or the opinion of others. It's the kind of love that says, I count you and your needs as greater than my own and I will commit to you and to your good, though it costs me everything that I have. It sounds a bit reckless, doesn't it? But it's this self-sacrificial self-emptying, awe-inspiring devotion that Paul prays that the Philippians would abound in. Far from just checking off this tick box, Paul wants the Philippian church to show love again and again and in increasing measure, like the trickle of a stream turning into the thunderings of Niagara Falls. Oh, hang on, you say. That sounds huge and potentially fraught. And well, Yeah, you'd be right, which is why Paul prays that their love would overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. Now, it'd be tempting to see Paul depicting a balancing of two forces here. Love is warm, knowledge is cold. Love is reckless, uh, knowledge is, you know, holding that back. But when Paul talks about knowledge here, he isn't first talking about knowing information or showing restraint. He's talking about knowing God intimately and personally. Being loved by God enables us to love like God. That is what wisdom looks like. But that's not just, the love of God isn't just a blind kind of affection given willy-nilly. Perhaps that's why it's knowledge and full insight or discernment. Paul is aware that we live in a fraught world. People like you and I are more difficult. And it's not always clear what form love ought to take for a person or for people affected by each other's actions. What I think he's getting at here is that it's not just our intent that is to be pure, but that our, that our impact needs to be beneficial when we're driven by the kind of love that God has, love that's characterized by knowledge and insight, well, we know when to speak up and when to let things slide. We know when to be authoritative and when to be gentle. This is the character of the love that Paul prays that would indwell the Philippian church. We've looked at the character of love, and now Paul turns to purpose of love. The reason that Paul prays for self-sacrificial love for the Philippian church is that their love will help you determine what is best. Now, when we think about what is best, our frameworks of priorities immediately jump into view. Most of us tend to think about what's going to make life easiest 
and most pleasurable and sometimes, let's face it, just manageable for us. We choose to order chicken and chips because we don't want to cook. We employ cleaners because it's hard to keep control of the housework. And we sign up to Netflix because we want to watch whatever we want, whenever we want. But what Paul means by what is best is far more significant than convenience or comfort. Don Carson writes about this phrase, quote, these excellent things, the things that are best, are nothing less than all the elements characteristic of maturing Christian discipleship. And we cannot discern and approve them unless our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, end quote. What he means is that the best things from God's point of view are all those thoughts and habits of life that form us to be more mature, obedient, joyful followers of Jesus. For example, that might include things, thinking about things like how we spend our time, what do we read, how are our relationships with our family and our friends, how, how is our personal prayer life, how do we use our money, how have we grown in compassion for one another, uh, where do we practice deliberate self-denial for the sake of loving others and loving God? To live a life discerning what is best means all of these kinds of choices are made with love for God at the centre of our entire value system. It means looking at life through God's eyes with his priorities. And sometimes that might seem counterintuitive. Uh, I grew up in small churches, a few around the place. My father was a pastor. And one of the choices that my parents made for us and with us uh, was to encourage us to not go to the big youth group. Now, as a teenager, one of your hopes is to make lots of friends. And it would be pretty easy just to go down the road, because it was literally down the road, to a big youth group where we would have lots of friends and a reliable program. Now, as beneficial as that is, and there are lots of those ministries that are doing great work, what they wanted to do was to build in us a desire to serve in places where there is greater gospel need. They were trying to do what is best for us from a gospel point of view. And now, if you're anything like me, you need some encouragement uh, because it's hard making choices like this and we don't always know how to make them or how to get them right. But the point is not that we do all of these things perfectly all the time, though we strive for that. It's about having a heart and life motivated by God's grace. And as a church, we are actually making these choices. Only a couple of weeks ago, we announced that collectively people within our church community had given over $100,000 to fund the building of new churches in Western Sydney. That takes extraordinary generosity and it demonstrates that there is a love for the gospel, that people here have been deeply shaped by a love of God in determining what is best. 
And I can testify that our kids' church leaders often turn up early and every week to disciple the youngest members of our congregation. Many of them have been doing so for over 10 years now. And anyone who has dipped their toe into kids' ministry knows that it's great, but it's challenging, like any ministry. And yet the leaders who keep coming back do it because they've been shaped by the love of God in determining what is best. What else might it look like for us, for you, to be growing more and more in determining what is best according to God's desires and priorities? Well, I want to add in a word here for those who might hear what I'm saying and feel burdened by that. I can see how it might be possible for someone who is already serving at their capacity to feel crushed by that prospect. And so I need to clarify that in determining what is best, it's not as simple as this or that, as do more things for church and you'll be on the right track. Our lives are complex and stewarding all of our decisions in all of our life is part of being a faithful disciple of Jesus, part of determining what is best. And sometimes that might mean doing less or doing differently for a season. And that will change for every person. Paul's point here, what he's concerned about, is how we make those decisions. And that they are motivated not by fear or by a lack of commitment to one another, but by the desire to steward our energy, our relationships and our, and, and our gifts in a way that honours Christ. The purpose of Christ-like, wisdom-driven love is to have our values and priorities aligned around God's will, that is, to determine what is best. So, if we know the character and the purpose of love, what is the end of love? What is its completion? Well, that's in verses 10 and 11. Read with me from the second half of verse 10. So that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The completion of living this life of love, Paul's ultimate goal in the Philippians being shaped by the character and purpose of love, is that, that, is that they might be ready for Christ's return. And that looks like being found pure and blameless before God. Borrowing from the book of Revelation, the image is of the people of God dressed in white robes, spotless and free from stain or blemish. And while they're free from sin, they are full of something else. A harvest, or better, the fruit of righteousness. Now while it might be make sense or be attractive to read the fruit of righteousness as a state of being made right before God. The better reading actually comes from the Old Testament in places like Proverbs 11, 30 and Amos 6 verse 12. And there, the fruit of righteousness means the outcomes of a pattern of life stemming from a relationship with God. It's God's own qualities showing up in our lives living in line with God's ways. And they are things that we build and cultivate as we are shaped by God's love together. In other words, 
Each time that you or I, out of love and obedience to Christ, go out of our way to drive another person to church every week, to patiently listen to a child explain what they've learnt at kids' church, or to take time to cook meals for rough edges. We are doing things that demonstrate that God's love has taken root in and is changing our lives. They are the fruit of righteousness. And of course, this doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. Um, This is something we need to pursue. It's not just going to be dropped in our lap. And more and more, uh, this fruit is something that through the power of Christ we cultivate in one another as well. And we want to pursue that to the point of excellence. Not because we're perfectionists, but because we want to see Christ honoured to the utmost in our lives and in the lives of each other. There's no room here for the attitude that says, well, I just come to church for my own spiritual nourishment. Yes, you do. But, siblings, we are here for our brothers and sisters. Through our humble encouragement and our service of one another, we are to generously, thoughtfully urge one another to live lives worthy of the gospel. And in case you were worried that this was basing our salvation on works in some kind of way, Paul reminds us that this is all comes through Jesus Christ. If we go back to our revelation image, God's people aren't counted pure and blameless because they never had any stains on them in the first place. On the contrary, they had many. But it was because they and their robes had been washed by the blood of the Lamb that they had counted righteous and clean. Similarly, the fruit of righteousness in our lives doesn't spring from our works, but comes from being renewed by God himself, being made his children. And lastly, Paul makes it clear what all of this is really for, the glory and praise of God. We live these lives not for our own aggrandizement or benefit, but to show how good and glorious God is, both now and into eternity. The love that God has poured into our hearts, we share amongst one another and then returns back to God in praise as it should. In the end, everything good comes from him. It's only fitting that all things are to his praise. And so Paul prays that God's love and wisdom would so shape the Philippian church, would so shape us in our life together, that we might live fruitful and joyful lives to the glory of God. Can we pray like Paul prays? Will you pray this for yourself and for one another? What could that do in our church life together? What would it say to the world who is watching us? Let's hold this vision of our future before us and let it transform all of our longings to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.